old seaman. He could navigate with the stars and stuff like that. That's how he had learned. But he got a call from British Petroleum who had a super tanker tied up in, in somewhere in, in Holland and Amsterdam and that. And, uh, well, maybe Amsterdam, it's a kind of where the big port over there is. They needed a seaman of his calibre. So they flew him out and they went on this and off they went to go up the Gulf and pick up oil and stuff like that. And this super tanker, I don't know, it's like a mile long or something like that. It takes about half a day to slow down and stuff. Just huge. And he was on, on the bridge one night and much to my father's sort of dislike, British Petroleum had brought in a new ruling that junior officers could now bring their wives to sea with them. Now, my dad, he comes from that, a woman on a ship was bad luck, it will sink. Right, he comes from that generation. So he was horrified at this. But I mean, this super tanker, it's like a small village, it's that big. So they, they have they have married quarters and that. But he was on he was on the he was on the, the, the watch and he as a seaman he's controlled the con on the wheel. And at that a junior officer came on and he brought his wife on the bridge. And at that he says, I will take the, the bridge, McLaughlin. So my father steps away from the wheel. It's now his responsibility. And he showed his wife and he's telling her all about it and this and that. And she says, What I'll do is I'll show you how to steer this, how we steer this beast. And he flicks off the, the autopilot or whatever they call it and starts to, and it's only a small wheel, but this monster flicks it off and my dad's. There's not saying, and the next minute there are alarms and klaxons going off everywhere. This thing's that huge. It starts to, of course, and it's all going off. I think they call it sway. Is it sway, David? That they call it sway when it goes off course. Like, I always remember my dad saying this, in a ship there's six angles or, or six degrees of movement in it. You can go that way, that way, that way, and all this. So it started to sway off course. The next minute the door burst open. The captain came in, he's got his hat on and his jacket over his pyjamas. What's going on? So they go, oh, and he says to my dad, get us back in course, my girl. And so my dad, back up. Right? And that's on course. The guy had knocked it off the course that it was on and it just drifted away and when Samuel in this piece of scripture appoints his sons that's what happened it just, just a wee slight thing it's a nothing and the next minute we're all heading in the wrong course that happened there and that was a disaster because his sons turned out to be scoundrels and the last time someone had appointed their son I think was Gideon's son of Amalek was appointed and it ended up in civil war among the tribes. <laughs> so God knew, don't appoint family members to be hereditary. Don't appoint them, it's not good. And with him appointing these corrupt sons, this gave the people of Israel the excuse they wanted to vent their grumbling. We all know if you've read your scripture, one thing about the Israelites, they are a grumbling nation. Moses was the grumbled them <laughs> all the way. And they grumbled. And this gave them the opportunity to vent their frustrations and their grumblings at Samuel. And they pop right up and they point to him and they say, give us a king. We want a king. And they use his corrupt sons as an excuse for this king. And they point at them. But the point that his sons was just, they were dressing it up. They were dressing up what their real motives and their real issue was. 
It was a smoke screen. But they also, because they give it away, they also give it away. They partly say, it's your sons, but we want a king who's going to go out and fight our battles. When I'm reading that, I was thinking, wait a minute, the problem is these guys are corrupt. What's, what's this? We want somebody to go and fight battles for us. Where, where did that come from? You've got a God that does that for you. What's happening here? And their argument and their reasoning sounds reasonable until we understand what's going on round about at the time. There were people round about them wanting to destroy them. And their solution to that was to have a king who would fight for them. So what they say is get rid of your corrupt sons, plus give us a king to deal with these people that are, that are on top of us. And we need to just, we need to pause here. Because on top of this argument with Samuel, Samuel's also taken the huff because they've rejected his sons. God must have been looking at this mess and <laughs> what is happening here? Samuel's taken the huff. They've rejected my sons. I can sort of understand that as a dad and anybody's got children. Somebody rejects your kids. You're never too pleased about it. You're never happy about that. And God has to cut through all this nonsense that's going on. And he says to Samuel, look, see all this that's going on? It's not about you. This whole mess that's going on is about me. This is about God. This is about their issue with me. It's not about their issue with you. And that's when you, you need to you pause and you look at that. Because Samuel had bypassed God's proven mechanism for picking leaders. He'd bypassed that. These are people who've rejected God. The God that had led them from slavery, who'd given them victory over their slave masters, who'd led them through a wilderness, who'd fed them, who'd given them a homeland, and who'd dealt with every enemy that had come against them. And for some bizarre reason, they don't want this God anymore. They want to go their own way. And on top of that, through judges, every time they sinned and turned away from God, he always took them back. But yet they want someone else to lead them now. A strange behaviour. And just before God lets them go on their way, he gives them a warning. He said, look, this king that you're going to pick, he won't be like me. He won't look after you. He won't give to you. He's going to take everything from you. He's going to take your sons, your daughters, your property. And in the end up, he's going to make you a slave. Is this what you really want? He's given them a warning before they go any further. He's given them a warning. And they seal their fate with a resounding yes. This is what we want to do. Fair enough, Samuel. Give them a king. Give them a king, an earthly bound king, a puny king. And by any standards, this is a mind-bogglingly selfish act of stupidity. If you look at their experience with God as their king, and they've been warned about what's coming, if they pick an earthly king, and they go ahead. It's mind-bogglingly stupid. 
which begs the question, why? Why would you make that decision? Because, let's be honest, it's not just a case of faulty logic. You know, they've looked at the situation and went, well, this, this and this, we better do this. That's a behaviour that they constantly repeat. If it's just faulty logic, you do faulty logic maybe once, twice, maybe a third time and you go, I need to stop doing this. This is a deep down ingrained behaviour of rejecting God that's come to the surface again. And God points that out to Samuel. He actually says that to him. In Samuel 78, 8, 78, it's not you have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. They repeatedly do this. They may be getting an idea why this piece of scripture is often visited, <laughs> because the behaviour often surfaces. So what's the real motives behind it? Well, the first motive behind it is for the people of Israel comes in the clue in Samuel 19 to 20. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. The demand to be like all the other nations is a direct contradiction of God's command to Israel. You will not be like the other nations. You will be set apart. You will be set apart. Exodus, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Their distinctiveness was to be marked out in the world as God's chosen people. Leviticus sort of brings that in, focuses that a lot neater when it says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. It, it pins it right down to what's going to make them different from everyone else. Now, when we use the, the word holy, we tend to use it as solely as moral purity, you know, doing the right thing. In scriptural terms, particularly in this context here, holy has... As a deeper meaning, a wider meaning, yes, it does mean the moral righteousness and purity because that's, a, that's a, a feature and a character aspect of God that we need to reflect. But it also means to be set apart, to be unlike when holy is used in this term. They were to be unlike the other nations. They were to be distinct. Yet here they are, Clearly saying to God, we want to be like them. We don't want to be holy. We don't want to be holy anymore. Because the truth is, being holy is hard in this world. It's hard. It has always been hard. The experience of the whole Israelite nation, it's been hard. And it's just too difficult. Because being different is hard in humanity. We can see that even in our own world today. 
ask a child that comes from a maybe a poor, broken, disruptive home, who, who's maybe you know isn't fed as well, doesn't have the in clothes in a school playground. Ask them how easy it is to be different when they stand out. It's not easy to be different. Ask the man whose skin colour is different from everyone he sees on a daily basis. Everyone he works with, everyone he talks to, everyone he goes to the shop, everybody he sits in his church. How easy is it to be different? Ask the mother, who's, who's a migrant mother, who's at the school gate and who has a different way of dressing and a different way of speaking from all the other mothers. How easy is it to be different? Human beings do not like to be different. We don't like it. You know, I was thinking of this. When I was a kid, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't happen nowadays, but there was no such things as protecting kids and being inclusive and all that. So the kids when I was younger, if you had red hair or if you were a bit overweight as a kid, you were singled out and you were treated terribly. The other one that came to mind was, you don't see it now, but when I was younger, you used to see a lot of kids with a patch over their, their eyeglass. Right? And they would get called horrible names because they were different. Israel was called to be different and they didn't like it. They didn't like it. They were called to be a model people. They were called to be a light to the nations. They didn't want it. They rejected their identity of who they were called to be. They wanted to be like other children in the world. So that's the first motive they have behind demanding a king. It's too hard to be different. Too hard to be holy. And that hasn't left us. Because the church today is under that same command. The church is called to be holy. The universal church, we're called to be holy. To be different, to be set apart from the communities that we're in. To be hallmarked by God's holiness. Now, Peter puts it like this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. There's a, there's a juncture here where you could easily, when speaking about the holiness of the universal church today, you could easily go into a full evening of pointing out the unholiness of every other church. There are lecterns and pulpits full of people, full of Christians pointing out the unholiness of other Christians. I'm going to have to leave that to them tonight. That's not my, my calling on that front. The purpose of God's calling us to be holy is primarily to know him. Because that's what he is. That's who he is. He's holy. And that holiness will lead and guide us in this world. That's what will make us look different. Because we will be led in a different direction from the other nations. Just like the Israelites. He does that through his work. That's where he makes the call from, and that's where he gives the guidance from. It's certainly not out of the hearts of men.
I tried to be holy for a long time and it just did not work. I ran out of steam pretty quickly. I just couldn't do it. We are to be holy as church, just like the Israelites, distinct and set apart. We're called to be a light to the nations. And we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis, am I set apart for God? Am I a light to my community? That needs to be something that's in our genetic makeup constantly. Because just like the Israelites, we will wonder. We need to keep bringing ourselves back. So the first point is that it's hard to be holy. Second one is that it's hard to live by faith. And that's what the Israelites make clear. It's too hard living by faith. That's what they're saying. How many is like the Israelites have had a situation in their life and we look at it like them, they, they say, we've got people want to attack us, we need a king to help us fight them. How many of us are in a situation in our life where we pray our solution to God? I'm an engineer by profession. Right, well I was, I don't do much engineering now. And it's in my nature, if something's not working, to look at it, take it apart, and find a solution. I do that in my spiritual life. There's something wrong. This is a problem. God, this is what we need to do. It is not natural for me to say, Thy will be done. I will say it, but all the time I'm praying in the back of my head, my solution is sitting there. God, look, can you see it? I mean, it's obvious. Just like the Israelites. They are no different. And they demand a king to fight their battles because their immediate problem is their fear and their anxiety of getting beat up, of being destroyed. Here's our solution. It's unmistakable that they want a king they can see. Because that's what they're telling Samuel. We want a king. We want him here. And we want him now. We want a king we can see. We're tired of working with a king we cannot see. It's too scary. I've had that experience in, in my faith life. You're, you're, you're in a difficult situation. And I've said to God, okay God, it's five to midnight. I'm terrified. You've got me completely terrified. And there's still silence. And sometimes I went and provided my own solution, which has never worked out well. And a few times I've waited. They're providing their own solution. They're no longer prepared to take the path of faith. And the path of faith is about repentance, prayer, deliverance. They no longer trust God to turn up for them. They have a history of being rescued by God. Time and time again. Of being fed by God. Of being protected by God. Of being taken back by God. And yet, they don't want them. They've rejected them. It's too hard, God. And the bit that makes it hard is the road of faith 
on the path of faith, it makes demands on you. You can't just stroll down it. It makes demands. You've got to be committed. You've got to be honest. You've got to trust. You've got to trust. And the one thing in the faith life that you do need is patience. All scriptural purposes. But virtues that this world rejects. They reject it. And it's not a new phenomenon, as I've said. Since the Garden of Eden, we've been rejecting this. We've been, we've been rejecting the road of faith. We've been rejecting the road of holiness. It's a repeated, repeated behaviour. And the Old Testament is awash with the rejections of God. And most of them based on that. We are not prepared to be holy anymore. And we are not prepared to walk without sin. But there is no rejection of God more horrific and stark than the rejection of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Out of all the rejections of God, it's the most horrific. The very descendants of the people who are demanding a king of Samuel, the very descendants when the Son of God stood before them. Pilate says to him, here's your king. The descendants of the Israelites shouted, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. They didn't even want a king like all the other nations. They actually took a king from one of those nations to be their king. A living in the flesh, face-to-face -face rejection of God. They rejected the Messiah king that God had promised them. Because the road of faith is about loving and believing without seeing. Peter puts it, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you receive the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Human beings do not want to walk without sight. And they don't naturally want to walk in faith. Too difficult. Because we live by what we see and what we hear. It's not an easy path. And that's why we constantly must be asking ourselves, in my life, do I turn to what I can see or do I turn to God? Do I look to people to solve my problems or do I look to God? When I'm anxious, do I turn to God first or do I go and cling on to someone? When I'm lonely, do I go and cling on to someone or do I go to God first? It's not saying that you don't go to someone. You've got to go to him first. That's because you could be clinging on to the wrong person, going in the wrong direction.
The other aspect of it is my faith in God. Is my faith in God? Is my security in God? Or is my security in my job? Is my security in my bank balance? I lived that for a long time until my bank balance was taken away from me. That's an interesting experience. Is my security in my family, in my culture, in my successes? Do we draw strength from what we can see or do we draw it from God? Because the repeated mistake that the Israelites made, they always turned from God to the world. We need to ask, is that what we do? The reality for us as Christians in this world is no different for us than it is for them. The path of holiness and the path of faith is as unnatural to us as it was to them. It requires commitment, patience, trust in God in this world. You may ask yourself, what's the point in that? What's the point of going through all that hardship? What's the end result? We need to understand that faith and holiness the hardship is not caused by them hardship when you exhibit faith and holiness in this world hardship is the world's response to it hardship will visit you that's just a fact there's no remedy for that Secondly, the paths of holiness and faith lead to a destination, a destination that was fixed a long time ago for us. And that destination is eternal life with God. That's why you walk that path, difficult as it is. It's eternity with God. It's your eternal life. That path was blocked off to us for a long, long time. Until the Son of God died on the cross. And the moment he said it is finished and gave up his spirit, the path to eternal life was opened up for us. It's cleared. The path of holiness, the path of faith. That's the ones that we need to walk. And you know the beautiful thing is, we've got a chart of that path. We've got the chart there. That's your chart. We're walking towards eternal life. Don't be like the junior officer on the bridge of that ship that switched off the compass. Don't do that. Because your whole course will just be on you. May God's word be blessed to our hearts this night and forevermore. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have forgiven us 
the most grievous of sin, the rejection of you, the rejection of your son. Father, we are not worthy for the gifts that you give us. We are not worthy of them. But like the Israelites, you repeatedly took them back. You take us back through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we need strength. We need guidance. We need direction. Because by our natures, we will stray from the paths of holiness and the paths of faith. Just like the Israelites. As we step forward into this world this week, Father, keep us true to you. Keep us stepping one step at a time towards you on that path. It will set us apart from those around us. We know that. And we know that there is a consequence for that being set apart in this world. Give us the courage to persevere, to continue So that at the end of this path, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We will receive the victory crown. We will receive the seat at the table. So when we are weary, Father, when our vision is not clear, come to our hearts and remind us of your beauty, of your love, of your forgiveness for us. Through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life on a cross so that the path to you may be opened. We pray all this in the name of our loving Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.